As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I walked down the, the street to a assisted care facility and I went in and I asked them just, what does it cost monthly for your memory care? And it was about $12,000 a month. It's insane. Do you know how much a home care worker makes per year? I'm assuming we're like fifteen to 20000 a year. The annual median income for a home care worker in America today is $13,000 per year. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I was very pleased to have the chance to talk to Ai-jin Poo. We spoke about her career and about her leadership of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and caring across generations. Ai-jin has been a noteworthy activist on the fundamental issues of in-home care for those who need it, as well as the proper treatment, respect, and pay for the domestic workers who provide that care. Ai-jin's work has received tons of recognition, and you ought to know about it. She makes several lists of top 50 influential people, and among her other awards, has won a MacArthur Genius Grant, something I've always wanted, but for which I have been in no way qualified. You will want to hear her story and what she is up to with the NDWA and caring across generations. So with that as background, a quick word from our sponsor, then my interview with Ai-jin Poo. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. My name is Ai-jen Poo, and I'm the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, co-director of Caring Across Generations. And my work is about uplifting the more than 2 million women who work in our homes as nannies, caregivers, and house cleaners to have dignified work that they can take pride in and support their families on, and to also create a caregiving system in this country that really holistically supports the family care needs that um, American families are faced with. So you've really tackled two enormous challenging problems. What was kind of the path that took you to these challenges? Well, I think uh, being raised by my grandmother... And in an intergenerational context, I think I always had a deep appreciation for the people who care for us in our lives. And my grandparents, they both played a huge role in 
teaching me my values, um, helping me to learn about discipline and hard work and all the things that have shaped who I am. And as they aged, and my grandfather, when he started losing his sight, we had a hard time finding appropriate care for him and had to place him in a nursing home against his wishes. And it was such a dehumanizing and frightening experience that it just really taught me, it really made me want to prioritize transforming the way that we take care of our families so that people, as they age especially, can have a dignified quality of life. And now we're in a situation with my grandmother. She actually is able in her early 90s to live in her own apartment and go to church twice a week and get her hair done and play mahjong with her friends. She's still very much independent. And as Atul Gawande would say, the author of her own story. And that's because she's supported by a home care worker named Mrs. Lee, who is just a phenomenal source of support and care. And so part of this is both out of appreciation for what my grandmother gave to me and what she deserves as she grows older, and then what Mrs. Lee deserves, which is to have a profession that's valued and respected and protected and where she can also care for her family. Uh, this uh, definitely touches me. I, we have bo- on both sides of my family, my wife, my wife's mother living with us right now and, and having some memory problems and trying to look forward to how do we deal with that. And my mother went through Alzheimer's and my father took care of her for 15 years until he couldn't. And so, you know, it, it definitely is a, it's a huge issue. What, what's sort of the founding story for the NDWA? The National Domestic Workers Alliance is 10 years old, but it really builds upon more than 20 years of organizing at the local level where women who work as house cleaners and nannies really started to come together in groups to support each other. I mean, the work is so isolating. If you think about you could go into any neighborhood or any apartment building and not know which homes are also workplaces because it's so hidden. It's not like there's a list somewhere where you can tell, right? And so the work is incredibly isolated, hidden behind closed doors, and actually excluded from a lot of the basic protections that we take for granted in the workplace, Um the right to minimum wage and overtime, the right to form a union and collectively bargain for your rights. These are some basic tenets of our labor laws, and they have always excluded domestic workers. And so I think each generation of this workforce has attempted to come together and make these jobs better jobs, to raise the wages, um, to improve access to benefits. And that that happened with our movement about 25 years ago. And when we came together in 2007 to found the National Domestic Workers Alliance, it was about 50 of us from six different cities around the country who were trying to organize locally and just found it to be so challenging. And so we were reaching out to find if there were other people who were struggling and trying to do the same thing. And we, we found each other and we realized that 
as women often do, that we are so much more powerful together. And that if there were a national voice for this workforce that has been so undervalued and so invisible for so long, that we could actually transform not only these jobs, but maybe even the country. And so we formed the National Alliance. And 10 years later, we've supported the passage of bills of rights for domestic workers in eight states. And there's now organizing happening in 30 cities around the country. And we have 64 affiliates and chapters in communities all over the place from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, to Seattle, Washington. And it's just exciting to see how much we've grown. So as an organization, you know, how many people work with you in sort of the, the central hub? We have uh, uh, almost 60 staff, and the staff are spread out all over the country because our members are spread out all over the country. And we do everything from training to advocacy to offering benefits and services to the workforce and a lot of just bringing women together to develop their leadership, to support their organizing We have a board that is elected from our membership. Um, We represent about 25,000 women all over the country. And every couple of years, they come together and they elect our board of directors. And those women are representative of domestic workers, caregivers, home care workers around the country who are leading our movement. So what are the big fights in front of you right now? Well, one very important one has to do with immigration because a lot of people don't know this, but domestic work, work inside of our our homes, is the part of the economy with the largest concentration of undocumented immigrants. And a lot of our members were able to legalize their status through the Deferred Action Program, referred to sometimes as DACA. They're dreamers. They're students, their daughters, their mothers, and they are part of our communities and our families. And their lives are at stake right now because Congress is currently in a debate about whether to pass the DREAM Act. And so that is a very important priority for us, passing the DREAM Act so that all of the 800,000 DREAMers can actually stay here in this country with their families. And another priority for us is making these jobs great jobs. In the 1920s and 30s, manufacturing jobs used to be these sweatshop dangerous jobs that a lot of immigrant women did. And we managed to transform those jobs into really good jobs that you could imagine a pathway to economic mobility for one generation after the next. And that is what we need to do with care jobs, both because of artificial intelligence and automation. A lot of jobs that currently offer economic mobility are disappearing. And because of the huge increase in the need for elder care in our families, as you know quite well, there is going to be a huge need for elder care providers. And it's already the fastest growing occupation in our entire workforce, um, anticipated to grow at five times the rate of any other job. And so we have got to make these jobs good jobs. I mean, they are a large portion of the jobs of the future. And so we have some real urgency um, in terms of making sure that they become good jobs that are 
economically secure, and um, family-sustaining jobs. So let me tackle each of those things that you mentioned. On the immigration front, there's been such an ongoing fight for so many years on the federal level to get an immigration reform through Congress, and it just hasn't happened. And now with the election of Trump, it feels like we're going backwards as fast as possible. How, you know, how do you keep going in that, in light of that circumstance, and and what what is promising? It's, um, you know, it is really challenging. But I will say that every time our nation is tested on this question, and certainly this administration keeps trying to drag us backwards. But every time that is tested we see a huge show of love and support and welcoming on the part of everyday Americans towards immigrants. And I think it was the case when his first Muslim ban was announced and thousands of us showed up at the airports. And now, you know, thousands of us are showing up for dreamers. And so I think that and this administration recently referred to some of our nations in an in a shockingly derogatory and racist manner. And the response to that was an outpouring of love and support and honoring of those countries and the people who make them great. And so I think both things are true. And you could focus on the fact that this administration continues to promote a kind of white supremacist and anti-immigrant narrative of this country. And we have to focus on that because we have to challenge it tooth and nail. But we also have to focus on the millions and millions of Americans who are with us on this question and who are going to take us into the future. Who do you see as, as the key partners in that immigration fight right now? Oh, you know, I have been to so many meetings where people of all walks of life are represented in this fight. One of our biggest partners is Moms Rising, and they are a group of everyday moms, over a million of them, um, who you know are really fired up and really frustrated at this administration's stance towards immigrants. They think it's un-American, they think it's bad for our kids, and they're right. And so I think you would be surprised at who, look, we always say that in a campaign for human dignity, there's no such thing as an unlikely ally. And I think that that's certainly been the case on this question. It seems like the immigration issue, like many others, have gotten tangled up in partisanship. And I don't, you're, I'm assuming you're, you're not running a partisan operation, but how do you navigate that you know, the way the parties are aligned on immigration? I think we have to put humanity back in our politics. We've lost the thread. Um, And I just, I think partisanship has become so toxic that I think we have to, as a movement and as people who care about people, we have to really take back power and drive a conversation about values, about humanity and about what kind of future we want for our children and our grandchildren. It is about our democracy, but that our democracy should be rooted in some core values that are morally anchored. Uh, I'm with you on that. What is your strategy for the idea of making domestic jobs great jobs? I mean, it seems to make all kinds of sense to me, but 
I guess on the other side of that is the people trying who are trying to hire domestic workers trying to be able to afford them. What's the plan? Uh, I would say there's short-term and long-term. So in the short-term, we really try to equip workers with the tools and the skills to be able to provide top quality services. We, we do a lot of training in elder care and certification to help people just continually improve the quality of service they're able to offer families. And then long term, we really believe that this country needs to revolutionize the way that we support families around their caregiving needs. So, you know, in the 21st century, it is it is ridiculous to me, given the numbers of women that are in the workforce, that we don't have universal child care or universal elder care. It used to be that our default was that we would rely upon women to care for our children and care for our aging parents at home. And that just hasn't been our reality for several decades now. So we need a whole new plan to support our family care needs as we work in the workforce. And so our big idea is called universal family care. The idea that we should have one social insurance program that everyone contributes to, that everyone benefits from, that helps us afford child care, elder care, and paid family leave. Basically all the things that we need in order to work and contribute to the economy while we have our families. And we shouldn't have to choose. And right now people are forced to make impossible choices. And that's what needs to shift in the future. So um, so universal family care, and we're getting it done state by state. Hawaii last year became the first state to pass um, a program called the Kapuna Caregiver Program. Kapuna is the Hawaiian word for elder. And essentially, the benefit is for family caregivers who are working to be able to apply for a benefit of up to $70 per day to help them afford things like respite care or hiring somebody to take their loved one to a doctor's appointment so they don't have to miss work. So really acknowledging that in this 21st century reality, there are tons of working family caregivers like yourself, right, who's caring for your mother-in-law at home, that you could use a little bit of support in this economy and and you deserve it. And so we passed that legislation and are implementing it in Hawaii. We just collected enough signatures to put universal home care on the ballot in Maine. So voters in Maine will be voting on universal home care in November. And in Washington state, we're working on a really exciting piece of legislation called the Long-Term Care Trust Act. It is a first-of-its-kind social insurance program to help Washingtonians afford elder care. You've uh, gotten an awful lot of attention for your work. if you look yourself up on Wikipedia, there's the list of awards is, is uh, kind of astonishing. How do you stay in touch with the realities of, of people who are actually doing normal jobs when you've kind of reached this level and where you're, you know, going to Hollywood with Meryl Streep and things like that? <laughs> so just to be clear, the Hollywood with Meryl Streep thing was not a normal thing. (laughs) That was not normal for me. (laughs) My normal life is just like everybody else's where I have way too much work and not enough time with my family and 
Uh, and it, there's not much that's that's very exotic about it at all. <laughs> I'm on a lot of phone calls that are not very exciting in a lot of meetings. But the thing that is true is that I have the great privilege and honor of working with an incredible group of women, including many domestic workers and caregivers every single day, who just inspire me with their energy, their determination, their courage, and I think that I have the best job in the world, even if it's not going to Hollywood every day. (laughs) If people want to help out with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? So if you have a domestic worker in your life, you know, if you have somebody who comes to clean your home or a nanny who helps you with your childcare, you know, just make sure they know that you value their work, that you see it, that you appreciate it, that you honor it, and that it's important to you. And if you would like resources about how to do the right thing, and, you know, it's not totally clear what that is sometimes. And so there's actually a website for an organization called Hand in Hand. Uh, It's domesticemployers.org. And there's so many resources there that can be helpful to you. And also connect the people that you know who do this work to us at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. We are a home for women who do this work and we have lots of resources. We support them to develop their leadership and to advocate for policies that can improve their lives. And it's just a great community for them to be a part of. And so if you can connect them to us at domesticworkers.org, we would really appreciate it. One of the things that that I'm interested in this podcast is people who found a way to make a career fighting to improve society, activism as a career. What can you say to people like that about about this as a way to live your life, to be employed, to employ other people? You know, I think that We are in a moment of unprecedented activation. And whether this is your profession or this is something you do in your spare time, I think that there's a role for everyone in this moment. And look, I I believe that our the future of our democracy is at stake and that every single time you show up and you get involved, whether it's your profession or not, it really matters. This is one of those moments in history when your kids and your grandkids are going to ask you, where were you? Were, were you at the Women's March? And what was that like? And, you know, the way that we do about the civil rights movement, I think this is one of those moments that only comes around once every few generations. And so whether it's as a profession or as a volunteer, this is our time to be on the right side of history. And as a profession, there is a huge need for people who can be especially in the field of community organizing and also in the field of electoral organizing. More people are running for office and getting involved in in electoral work than ever before. And I think there's lots of opportunities out there. And and look, I think it is it is really important that we find our way of fitting in and being a part of bringing in the next great social movement moment in this country. I, I think of you as, as a political entrepreneur or civic entrepreneur. What do you think the characteristics are of a strong entrepreneur of that sort? I think... There's no one way, I think, to do this work or to lead. But I do think some important qualities are um, 
stamina in this world where you can kind of click and, you know, press a button and things show up at your door, efficiency and convenience and speed. There's a high premium on that. And one thing that I've found is that there's some things that simply take longer <laughs> and, um, and that we have to wait for and where there's no shortcuts and no more efficient road. And I think that social change is lasting social change does take time and it takes patience and endurance. Stamina is very, very important. There is no, I mean, I've been doing this work for more than 20 years and there's so many ways in which I've learned that there are no shortcuts to building something real and something powerful, something that has real meaning and that can really change people's lives. The other thing I would say is an ability to maintain a generous spirit. In American political life, there is always a push to be zero sum in your approach, right? To in this very competitive culture, there's always this notion of if this group has more power, it means this group, other group has less. And I think we have to maintain a spirit of abundance and generosity at all times. And that when you're able to do that, it helps kind of, it helps bring you through day to day and spiritually. And, and it also yields better results. I, I hear a lot of wisdom there. What do you think is the biggest misconception that we have about domestic workers? That it's not work. <laughs> um, they just hang out all day and, and uh, yeah, that they just are on their phones and you know watch TV and I mean we're talking about really profound emotional labor, really important skills that look this job at its best is about upholding the human dignity of another person if you're an elder care provider if you're a child care provider it's about nurturing the human potential of a child what could be more important and yet we can't even culturally recognize it as a profession <laughs> you know and i think that that is something we really have to change what do you think their potential is for political power among domestic workers? Well, we always say <laughs> that one domestic worker can transform a family through their care and through their work. But, you know, 250,000 domestic workers can change a country. And I think because of where this workforce sits in this economy and just how profound economic inequality has become, there is a lot that this workforce can teach us about the kind of solutions we need to ensure that everyone has economic opportunity and security in the future. So I would bet on this workforce um, in terms of the ability to build political power over any other, I think. I mean, it seems like a a notably difficult type of workforce to organize though. <laughs> it is. It's true. I mean, it like I said, it's a, a you know, million workplaces all unmarked and it's all disaggregated. One worker per workplace and so it's definitely difficult to find women and to bring them together, but nothing worthwhile was ever easy. 
So uh, we do it and it's forced us to be creative actually. And a lot of our strategies are useful, it turns out, to other workforces because many American workplaces are looking more and more like domestic work every day. I mean, when we think about all the gig economy workers, we often talk about how domestic workers were the original gig economy workers. All of the conditions that define domestic work, low wages, unpredictable hours, no written contract, no job security, no training, no career pathways, no access to benefits or a safety net. Those dynamics are becoming, unfortunately, more and more the norm in more and more parts of our economy. So there's a lot that we can learn from the solutions that we've developed and the ways that we've figured out how to organize. And we're still figuring it out, but we've made a lot of progress. Um, and a lot of people told me 20 years ago, you'll never be able to organize domestic workers. And then they told me, you'll never pass a domestic worker bill of rights. That's impossible. And here we are doing it. A lot of the gig economy works off these sites where, you know, you list what you can do and people go find you and, and make short-term work. Is there such a arrangement for domestic workers? And, and if there is, what are the pluses and minuses of such a arrangement? You know, like an Uber for domestic work or whatever. Yeah, there are more and more examples of technology companies that are that are really revolutionizing how families and care workers find each other. And there's some considerable possibilities and opportunities with that. And also some things that we should be, you know, looking out for and cautious about. There's lots of sites that match domestic workers and families, like a market, they call them marketplaces. And I think that those marketplaces have the opportunity to help raise standards in the industry by promoting fair wages and fair working conditions. And those technology companies actually have a huge role to play in changing cultural norms to really value this work. So we've actually worked with a number of them to do just that. And one thing we've done, for example, is called the Fair Care Pledge with the Employer Association Hand in Hand that I mentioned earlier and the company Care.com. We have been asking families to take a pledge to pay a living wage, offer a paid time off, and have a clear work agreement with the people who work in their homes. And we've gotten over 300,000 families to take that pledge. So, you know, I think there's really unique opportunities to reach caregivers and employers at scale through technology. But I think it's, it is going to require a lot of moral courage on the part of tech entrepreneurs in the space to really say and make a commitment to good jobs. Who do you look to as role models, uh, activist role models for yourself? Oh, well, I have the great fortune of actually working with one of my mentors who's been my mentor since I was 25, a woman named Linda Burnham, who was our research director for many years and is now an advisor to the organization. She is a, a woman who has been doing a social justice work oh, since she was 18 and she just turned 70. So for a very, very long time, <laughs> and she's seen the country through a lot of changes, and she was the founder of the Women of Color Resource Center and had many other roles. But she has been my mentor 
for two decades. And it's just been so important to have that that mentorship over so long and to now be able to work together has been a real gift. And I find in general that intergenerational relationships in this work is so important because we have such a tendency to make the same mistakes over and over again. And I don't mind making mistakes. I just don't want to make the same ones. So I want to make new mistakes. And I fear that a lot of, um, that we without more intergenerational exchange in this kind of work that we end up just continuing to repeat the same errors. And so I'm a big promoter of working intergenerationally and having a cross-generational staff. I've often thought in the electoral arena that the most compelling candidates are the ones that have a platform of like a proposal like your universal care. Have you thought about running as a candidate yourself on such a platform? No, but I am supporting any candidate who would like to run on this platform. (laughs) Um, We actually, at Caring Across Generations Action Fund, we have a program where we're supporting care champions, candidates who want to run for office and want to champion a universal family care agenda. And it's been really exciting to see the numbers of candidates who are really energized by this idea and see the potential that we see, which is that care is an incredibly unifying issue. It's like gold in a highly polarized political environment to be able to have something that you could talk to any voter across race, class, generation, and they will have some story, some very deeply personal, emotional story about care in their life. And that is, to me, real gold for any candidate for office. And so we're, we're trying to raise awareness about that and offer it as a resource for the next generation of leaders. I think that there's, you have something there that really is compelling and, and does cut across in ways that just about every family can relate to. We didn't talk much about your other organization, Caring Across Generations. Could you give us a capsule of what that is and what it does? Yeah. So Caring Across Generations is our movement to build what we call the caring majority, to support all the families out there who are struggling around their caregiving responsibilities and to bring them together with all the people who are advocating for good jobs for the future and to say, we need a whole new approach to care in America that supports affordable, good care for families and really good jobs for all the care workers. We call it a care infrastructure. If you think about what infrastructure is, it's it's really everything like that supports all the roads and the transportation systems and everything that supports commerce and the economy and you know what could be more fundamental in that than care and so caring cross generations is supporting policies around the country that support caregiving what do you think the democratic party should be doing right now that they're not doing Besides organizing around family care issues? (laughs) I mean, that's often been a thread of of the party platform and of many people's campaigns, but it's not necessarily central. There are so many issues. But what what do you think is missing, or do you think the party's on the right track? I think the party needs to really clearly articulate a vision for the future that all kinds of people can see their their interests inside of. And I think 
it's not enough to be against everything that's bad. You know, I think we need to be clear about what we're for and what we want to move the country towards. And I think the Democrats, something like universal family care gives people a really concrete sense of what kind of America the Democratic Party wants to see and is going to build. And uh, I think people really need to hear that. You know, there's the ideology on the other side seems fairly opposed to what they would see as expansion of this, the social safety net. How do we combat that? How do we persuade Republicans and, and people who agree with them that this is in everybody's best interest rather than, you know, money being spent on, I don't know, the takers or however they might view it? Mm. Well, you know, what's funny about this is we're already spending extraordinary amounts of money on family care and elder care in particular in incredibly inefficient ways. People are having to spend down their entire savings in order to get on Medicaid to have support for their long-term care. And it's actually a huge driver of inequality because people are essentially depleting their assets and, and essentially unable to transfer wealth from one generation to the next just so that they can afford the care that they need. And there isn't a market solution. I actually am not against allowing the market to solve problems that it can solve. I actually believe that if they can solve it, they should and in the private marketplace. And this is one of those things that even if you ask insurance companies that sell a private long-term care insurance product, they're all trying to get out of this market because it's not a good product. It's a loser for them. So this is one of those problems that I think I can get a whole bunch of allies in the private sector just to stand with me to say, we need a public solution here. And when we create that solution, we have the potential to create so much in terms of unlocking productivity and human potential of working family caregivers who are just totally overstretched and overburdened at the moment. We have the potential to save a bunch of money in the healthcare system because a lot of the waste in the healthcare system happens as a result of end-of-life healthcare that could be prevented if there was good access to caregiving at home on the front end, right? If people had assistance with activities of daily living and, you know, the ability to better manage medications and nutrition, we think about resources, I think, in, in ways that, that limit our ability to, to be creative about solutions. It's that scarcity mentality that I was talking about earlier, the zero-sum game. And I think this is one of those examples where if you think about this country as a country and our and our people as a people who are abundant in terms of resources and creativity and the ability to care, and we invested in that, it could actually solve so many of our challenges. What's a question that you would wish I would have, would have asked you? I think you asked a lot of really great questions. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think you covered everything. Well, it's been a delight to talk to you. I'm, I'm very happy to have you out there fighting for what you're fighting for. Much appreciative for the country. Thank you. And I am 
also grateful that you shared your own care story and would love to have you talk about that more on your podcast because I think one of the big challenges that we face is that so often this issue of care is seen as kind of a personal responsibility and a burden and a problem that you just have to solve yourself. You know, I, I walked down the, the street to a assisted care facility and I went in and, uh, and it's a sunrise and I asked them just, what does it cost monthly for your, for your memory care? And it was about $12,000 a month. It's insane. $12,000 a month is so much more than most people make in gross wages in a household. Do you know how much a home care worker makes per year? I'm assuming or like 15 to 20,000 a year. The annual median income for a home care worker in America today is $13,000 per year. Yeah, probably a little higher where I am, but yes, that's not going to afford assisted care for your family. Exactly. I mean, we we live in a country where 70% of the workforce makes less than $50,000 per year. There is no way that they will be able to afford a $12,000 per month situation. So we have got to figure out a solution that is a collective solution. It's a national challenge and a national opportunity and something that can unite us, I think, in in really powerful ways. And there are enormous consequences to us not getting ahead of this and and addressing it as, as as you just described. When you look internationally, is there a country or countries that you think are getting this right that are you know, big and complex and diverse like ours? I think that there are countries that are better. I don't know that anybody's totally getting it right, but I think certainly the Nordic countries have much more investment in the care infrastructure and just the ability of working people to be able to take care of their own families and their health. Nordic countries, Germany has universal long-term care, and even Canada is better than we are. But I think the piece that's never quite there is this piece around how we value this workforce. And there's some countries where it's seen as a little bit more of a profession, but in terms of it truly being valued for its worth in our lives and in the economy, it's just never quite it's never quite what it should be. And we have the opportunity in the United States to, to change that and to be a real leader and to honor uh, this workforce for its true worth and make these good jobs for the 21st century. Ijin, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> no, I'm good. So that was Aijin Pu with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's at domesticworkers.org. I am hoping that the political opportunity comes for the kinds of reforms to our caring infrastructure that Aijin envisions. They would greatly improve our country. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.